Good morning. Good morning, church. Welcome. Welcome as we gather this morning to worship our Lord and Savior. Um, I invite you to come take your seat. We're going to start with a call to worship in Isaiah chapter 42. The scriptures read, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. We serve a sovereign God who's planned our path. We try to pick and choose our steps, but the Lord establishes that path. And in his sovereign will, if you're here this morning, you can say with assurance and faith that this is all part of our God's plan. To worship him, to glorify his name, to exalt him. This morning, Lord, we exalt your name.
the throne who was and is to come and to the Lamb who was
hope in God, oh my soul. He is strong and He is strong to save. Hope in God, He's a rock in your hiding place. Hope in God, oh my soul. Oh, 
darkness new every morn our sins they are many his mercy is more thank you for your mercy Lord listen to this quote from Thomas Goodwin a Puritan writer about God's mercy says this, if your heart be hard, his mercies are tender. If your heart be dead, he has mercy to liven it. If you be sick, he has mercy to heal you. If you be sinful, he has mercies to sanctify and cleanse you. As large and as various as are our wants, so large and various are his mercies. So we may come boldly to find grace and mercy to help us in time of need. A mercy for every need. This is the mercy that we can receive this morning from the Lord. It's the mercy that Jesus has purchased for us when he died on the cross for our death, for for our sins, with his death. Let's continue to praise him for this. He who is mighty has done a great thing. He's taken on flesh and conquered death's sting. Shattered the darkness and lifted our shame. Holy is His name. He who's mighty has done a great thing. Taken on flesh, conquered death's sting. Shattered the darkness and
and all the earth will shout your praise. Hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. And all the earth will shout your praise. Hearts will cry, these bones will sing. for all the gifts that you've given to your people or that you've given to us or the 
gifts that we get to experience together week after week when we gather. Gifts of peace and, and of hope. Gifts of mercy, Lord, as we, as we sing songs like these to you, Lord, we're just made freshly aware of your mercy and your grace that's been given to us in Christ. Lord, but we want to be people who are ever-growing in our responsiveness to the gifts that you've given. Lord, so we are a rich people here this morning. Lord, we have been given the gift of eternal life in Christ. We've been given the gift of mercy like we've sung about this morning. Lord, you should, you should see a room filled with people who can't contain their gratitude, who have to pour out praise to you with the breath that we've been given, even. Lord, so just grow our affection for you, Lord. Grow our awareness of all that you've done for us. Lord, strengthen our resolve. Lord, to want to be gathered in this room with our voices lifted loudly to you, with our hearts overflowing in praise. Because you're worthy, God. You've given us so much, Lord. We're rich people. So thank you for being the giver of life. Thank you for the love that you've given us, Lord. Thank you for bringing light into our darkness, for giving us hope, for restoring our brokenness. Lord, you're a good God, and we praise you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. Why is it easy for the Christian to come into a setting like we do and praise God? It should be easy. It should be easy because when we are reminded of what God has done in our lives, when the story of our redemption is brought forth to us, when we are reminded that we are recipients of grace and mercy, our hearts respond in worship. And this is what we've been doing this morning. Some of the song lyrics, he who is mighty has done a great thing, taken on flesh, captured death's sting, shattered the darkness and lifted our shame. How, how many of us walk with shame day in and day out because of something we've done or something that's been done to us? And here's a promise that in Christ, shame is lifted or praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more that God loves us with such an abounding love that we will never out his love towards us. What do these things do in our hearts as believers? Well, they, they motivate us. They fill our hearts with thanksgiving. And that thanksgiving turns into a song of praise. And I want to point you to a passage in 1 Timothy where this is exactly what happens. Where Paul seems to be talking about what God has done in his life. And then he just kind of has a little mini worship service in this passage. This is 1 Timothy. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service. So he's telling Timothy, this is what God has done in my life, the grace he's done in my life as he's led me to become the apostle. Though formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy 
because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And listen to how he just goes into worship. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. A people who have been reminded of the mercy that God has extended to them. Who have been reminded of the grace that God has so lavishly poured into their lives. They are a people who respond with thanksgiving in praise to God. And these, this unique moment of our weekly collection of tithes and giverings are a means to do that. This is not just some routine that we do because we got to pay the light bills. This is a moment where the people of God have a chance to respond. God, you have lavished us with mercy and grace. Not part of your love, not most of your love, but your infinite love has been poured into our hearts. So we are thankful. So we respond by giving to you of what you have asked us to be steward of. So as we go into this time of tithes and offerings, let us pray with that mindset. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for... The infinite love that has come into finite hearts, Lord. Thank you for provisions that we were unaware of, Lord, that we need to be reminded of every week, Lord. Thank you that you're not impatient, Father. Thank you that you've never had it up to here with us, Father. You are kind and, and your steadfast love endures forever, Father. And we are the recipients of such perfect, infinite love. So, Father, move in our hearts to be thankful people, to be people who worship you, Father, through our singing, through our actions, and through our giving, Father. We turn these things over to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Ronald. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, I am uniquely excited about giving the announcements on, on this particular Sunday. Uh, 2020 has been a weird year uh, for all of us, but it's been a really weird year for Lakeview as a church. There's typically a lot in our calendar. Uh, there's, there's more than we can do in our calendar, and we typically add more and more stuff. But for the past four or five months, th there's been less than usual in our calendar. Our calendar has been empty week in, week out. And so we come up and we give you one announcement or two announcements, but I have, well, I had nine announcements that I had to make that I've had to trim down, which just lead to there's there's a return to normalcy. There's a return to the routines of grace and ministry here at Lakeview Christian Center. We're excited that the Lord is, is moving us into a season of, of ministry activity and, and encouragement to you guys as you have stayed with us. So I'm just excited to, to see things populate our calendar again. So I'm going to do this the best I can because there's a lot I have to say. And when my mouth runs, None of us understand. Uh, I've got the gift of confusion when it comes to speaking, so bear with me. So announcement number one. Um, we are in a season where we have observed the limitations of human wisdom and human efforts. 
in a season where we have seen racial hostility, racial disunity, and, and in some sense, righteous and justified appeals for uh, certain uh, sections of society to be welcomed and appreciated and not forgotten. Ironically, those, those approaches have led to violence, to to protests to a whole lot more instability. So how ironic is it that culture has seen to fix problems and has created problems in its midst? And that's led to not just racial animosity. It's led to the tearing of how culture and how people see each other in their day-to-day living. So if you, like me, are wanting to uh, write the government kind of an, a, a tax exempt request because this past week you wasted an hour and a half of your time watching, you know, two older guys yell at each other on TV. Um, you were probably as frustrated as I was, but I, what's sad about that debate, what's sad about what happened on that stage is you got to see a, a mirror of our culture. This is what we as a people have become, where our opponents have become our enemies. And there's no longer an opportunity for civil discourse, for conversations, for engaging in debate. The only strategy now is destroy, 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 destroy. We as a people of God, we as Christians are called to a higher standard. But what do we do? Culture wants to fix race issues. Culture wants to fix disunity issues. Culture culture wants to go and speak for the oppressed. And culture screws it up. And our leaders can't seem to do any better. Disunity is just reaped and and just things get worse. What do we do? Well, we as the people of God know what to do. We turn to our God. So October 14th, in a couple of weeks, we will have our second of three prayer gatherings. We had one in September that featured earnestly pursuing the spiritual gifts. And, and this place was packed for, for that Wednesday. And we we're excited for that. But, but we are encouraging you guys, if you were here for that Wednesday, we've got personal dimensions of what's happening, not just in culture, but in the church. Disunity is coming in and it's affecting how we do lives with each other. This is beyond us, church. We need God to come and intervene. So mark it on your calendar, October 14th. We will have a unique prayer gathering uh, to, to focus on the dimensions of gospel unity in a world of pandemic and social struggles. Um, wow, that was one of five. I've got to hurry up. Um, we have a marriage course coming up. Uh, Cherish, uh, a book written by a man by the name of Gary Thomas, wrote an excellent book some time ago called Sacred Marriage. He's released a new book called Cherish. And, and so if you're a married couple in the midst and, and you're, you're wanting the Lord to speak into your, uh, your setting, um, maybe your, your, your marriage house has kind of gotten uh, foggy, so you, you need spiritual windicks to kind of clean some of what your marriage looks like, come join us. Uh, registration is available for you guys. I will tell you, tickets for this have, have their free, but tickets for this have sold quickly. So we don't have a whole lot of seats available for this. So if you're married in our midst and and, and you're wanting to see what does the Lord have to say to me and my wife in in, in this moment of of, of our marriage, come be informed of that. Frank Laurie is going to be leading that. It's going to be a wonderful time. Uh, This week, we've got a couple activities to remind you of. Friday, men's prayer, 630. Come pray with us. There's there's donuts available uh, and they're very yummy. So come be a part of that. And then There's been some confusion as to when Alpha starts, when Alpha doesn't start, and what's going on with Alpha. All you need to know is this Tuesday, Alpha begins. 
There's information um, in those tables in the back, and you can certainly visit our website. But our Alpha goes green. It goes on this coming Tuesday. Uh, and then finally, we are, um, we're hiring. Uh, so if you... Um, if you happen to be skilled in areas of communication, um, you can't read that what's on the screen, but you could probably read this little card that's back there. Uh, if, you, if you know someone or if you are someone who has experience in, in the communications department, uh, we would love a chance to have a conversation with you, and, and, and you can come and be a part of our, our team. Email Pete at LakeviewChristianCenter.com, and he will connect you uh, well with himself because you're going to talk to him. Um, but I think that is all Keith I've run out of words uh, so come share the word with us brother I thought you're gonna have an altar call you know just go ahead and just anybody like to repent in view of the announcements the Douglases are here what are you guys doing here what a joy uh, all right well you guys can be turned yeah <laughs> yeah you're and, you know I just made a comment in the first service that I'm I'm trying to speed up a little bit because I'm afraid that Jesus is going to return before we finish this book of First Corinthians. Uh, all right, a couple of things uh, before we get into the word. Uh, I'm not sure. You know, the first service did a much better job of wearing pink. I'm the only guy in pink today. I don't know if you know this, but this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And, uh, you know, the awareness that I would want to make sure that ladies in our midst are uh, aware of is our support of them, our prayers for them. We have a number of folks who have fought battles with breast cancer who are, are doing extremely well. We have some right now who are in the midst of fighting battles in that category. Uh, so please know uh, we notice the need that you have and we are praying for you. We're not just acknowledging that need as a body. We're praying for you in this category today. Uh, I want to give a shout out to two of my most favorite people in the world. I don't know if they caught the first service or the, they're tuned in for this one. That'd be Bill and Nancy Treby, who are uh, unusually not here. And if you know anything about Bill and Nancy, Bill, who is one of our elders here, and Nancy's been together, they've been a part of the church for quite a while. They have been in more gatherings at Lakeview Christian Center than probably most of us combined. Uh, they have been a part of this church for so long and, and just they're in a place right now that they're not able to be here. So Nancy's returned home from the hospital and we are so grateful that they're tuning into a live stream this morning. We love you guys. We miss you terribly and we are praying for you and grateful for you as well. Um, let me pray with us a certain way before we jump into the word this morning. I had a, just an impression this morning, just kind of came strangely, but I just want to pray out of it. Uh, you know, first service just had this sense that, you know, when we come into this place, we gather here, this, this is a special moment for us as a people, um, in your week. And I had the impression this morning, like, kind of like you, if you're watching national geographic and they're doing some story from the Arctic circle and they go outside and the wind is blowing, you know, at 110 miles an hour and the snow is going sideways. And you just know this guy's going to get frostbite within seconds. And then they, they go inside of whatever building they have managed to construct. And there's this moment of, and it's totally different in there, right? That's what I feel like our gathering on a Sunday morning is a little bit like that. Just there is so much blizzard in our world right now. So much noise, so many ideas, so much pressure and thoughts 
flying around out there. We come in here. We, we need this moment where that noise just kind of gets thumped and put on the outside. And we just get a chance to be with God in his presence in a different environment, listening for him uniquely. So that's what we're doing here this morning. We've had that time of worship already just to be in the presence of God, but we're going to be in his word now. And so let's, let's just pray for a moment. Father, it's, it's a blizzard out there. I guess in many ways, since Adam and Eve departed the garden, um, they have been in the storm of this fallen world. Lord, just the, the winds have picked up. It's, it's more of a violent storm today than it seems like it was early in our, in our lives. So God, amidst all the noise, and, and Lord, that noise, some of it's personal noise, some of it's societal noise, political noise. Lord, we are here now gathered before your throne in your presence by your spirit. So Lord, let us, let us hear the door close. Let us just be in a moment where it's just, it's just you speaking to us, getting our attention. So God, I thank you for every person gathered here. I thank you for every person who's drawn aside watching at home right now. But thank you that you know the hairs on our heads. That you are the God who bottles up our tears. You are paying attention to the life going on around us. And you want to speak something to us this morning. We welcome that, Lord. We welcome you doing that by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I came across a thought from a respected author who wrote an article this week. His name is Greg Gilbert. He was speaking to pastors, and it caught my attention just because of the times in which we are living. But I want to transfer most of what he says here to not just to pastors, to anybody who's following Christ. This is, this is true of what life is feeling like right now. Greg says, this is a hard year to be a pastor. There's the pandemic. There's the frustration for many of us of not being able to gather with the church as normal. There's the civil unrest boiling in many of our nation's cities. There's the fraying patience of our church members. And our own deep sense of decision fatigue. There's the demand by, frankly, everyone to do something, say something. And irritating and aggravating all this, uh, like an Old Testament hair shirt. I'm not sure I ever want to wear that. There's the presidential election. This is a hard year to be a pastor. I, I would add it's a hard year to be human. <laughs> uh, it's a hard year to be a Christian. And frankly, it doesn't much look like it's going to get easier anytime soon. So what's a pastor to do? Well, here's the best I've got. Remember the office you hold. Remember where your authority lies. Remember your charge. And let me just pick that up and place it on everybody here. If you're a Christian, there's a charge on you, on your life, right? You, you didn't come to Christ and then just whatever you got planned for the rest of your life, you just go about doing that. There is a charge on your life. There's a plan. Your, the days of your life are planned by God. He says, the fact is, you're not a politician. You're not a pundit. You're not a get out the, the vote lackey for a political party. You're not a social media influencer, whatever that is. You're a herald of the king of heaven. 
And as such, you hold a special authority in charge to speak for him. So say what he says, no more and no less, and remind your people that this world is not all there is, no matter how much this world may want to make them forget that. All right, so in just a moment, we're going to dial into a passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the apostle Paul is going to speak in a moment that, you know, they got their own Arctic snowstorm going on in the first century here. But Paul's going to speak to them in a moment that's going to almost like press a reset button for them. He said, I want to remind you of something, something that he's going to describe as of first importance. And so I think this is a good moment for us. It's a moment for the Corinthians that there are moments when the noise is so great that one thing needs to draw our attention. One thing needs to draw our focus. And I don't know how disorienting this time is for you. I'm not going to embarrass one of my children on the front row here. Um, I had one particular child who, uh, when he was little, some of you knew him as a big fat crybaby. Um, that kind of gives away who it is. But there was a moment in his life where too much noise, too much flurry, just, it just wigged him out. Right, So you couldn't even solve this by going to Disney World. We went to Disney World one year when he was little. And there was this great show with lights. And then there was fireworks. Well, you know, it's like, okay, too much stimulus, stimulus overload. I didn't get to enjoy the lights or the fireworks. Everybody else did. I had to take him to go run for cover. We need to get away from all this blur. Ah, and then he settled down. Well, one of the ways that we discovered that we could kind of overcome some of this was by running the vacuum cleaner. Right, so we just would hold him, rock him, whatever, and we turn the vacuum cleaner on. And the reason why that worked, we figured out, is because instead of multiple things, there was just one thing. And somehow that just had an effect on him. Because if there were multiple things to pay attention to, too many people, too much interaction, too much noise, a variety of noises, it just overdosed his wiring. But one thing? If you just focus on one thing, it made everything else just sort of settle down. And that's what's in this passage, right? I think the similar effect for the Apostle Paul helping these Corinthians, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1. <clears throat> Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to warn me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. It was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. 
All right, there's one thing here. In the midst of 14 chapters that have preceded it, right? So I don't want to ignore something that's taken place in this passage. Paul gets to this moment and he's talked about a lot of things. A lot of things that I would say are important things. We've taken time. We've gone through the chapters. This wasn't Paul going rogue and now finally the inspired word of God. 14 chapters of what are you talking about, Paul? Wasting our time. Now, now this matters. No. Every chapter, every issue has had a matter of importance. And the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to address them. So we've been hanging out with the people who, who couldn't figure out how to get along with each other. A church that put their own personal interests ahead of the interests of others. People with money, ignoring people without money. Fellowship that wasn't being done right. A celebration of the Lord's Supper that's like, whoa, time out. That's not a good celebration of the Lord's Supper. Don't do that. Divisions. Oh, I'm with this guy. I'm of that teacher. I'm loyal to this one. Right? You, you tracking with me all that we've been hanging out in? And, oh, then there's spiritual gifts. And you guys should use them, but you're like the one church who's using them in a way that you shouldn't be using them. So he corrects that. I mean, there's been a lot of issues leading up to this moment where Paul's going to say, I need to remind you of the one thing that is of most importance. Now, the Corinthians had their set of issues. We've got ours. It's not exactly the same list. But, you know, we're, we're living in, a, in the year 2020, as Ronald mentioned. Uh, this year has generated more issues, more topics, more struggles, more conflicts, more things for us to think about, interact with. And, and, and I would say these things are of some importance. Right? I know the, the big issue pressing on us, you know, the political scene. There's, there's an election coming. The The leader of the free world is going to be chosen in these coming days. Legislation and ideas are going to become laws that either help or hurt people. There's a Supreme Court justice that's going to serve in a very important position in our country for years and years and years. Those are important matters. Without question, nobody should treat those like, ah, well, those things don't matter. They do matter. We're living in an an unusual health moment. A a pandemic has created a need for public health policies and what you can do, what you can't do. How do you gather? How do you not gather? We've, We've never had laws in these categories before, but all of a sudden we have to have laws in these categories now. And then these laws pull on economic factors. Like if you overdo these laws, some of us in this room right here could lose jobs. Your businesses could shut down. You could lose benefits and you'd you'd be in a real uncomfortable position trying to figure out how do I pay my bills at the end of the month now that I've lost my job, now that I don't have health insurance and yet my wife needs this operation going on. These things have a matter of importance to them, do they not? So all around us, our our, our civil moment where there is a, a, a culture, a society trying to come to grips with there's not equality amongst people and there's not. And people are being treated differently. And there's discrimination. And there's laws and rules that some of that interacts with. There's personal attitudes amongst people. There's hatred. There's oppression and those being oppressed. There's mistreatment. There's injustice. These things are all matters of some importance. We shouldn't ignore these issues. But they are not matters of first importance. 
Paul lived in a day, by the way, where most of these issues, apart from the presidential thing, he didn't have much of an opportunity to interact with a people who had any democratic voice at all, which I'll probably talk about that as we get closer to the election. But you do recognize there are no instructions in the Bible on how to participate in a democracy. And if you find some, please point them out to me. Democratic governments don't exist in the Bible. And you're going to have to figure that out, right? So we're going to have to do the best we can with that. But these issues were touching people's lives. They had a matter of importance. And, you know, if it weren't 2020 and I was doing this message, I wouldn't start with any of those issues because none of those would be loud enough for us. Maybe the presidential one would be. But you know what would be really loud for each one of us here? Is the personal snowstorm that's going on in our lives. It's just your own script. What are you going to do with your life? Who do you want to be? What kind of talents do you have that you'd like to see that turn into something meaningful? What kind of hobbies do you have that you wish you could have time for that? That you you could travel more? You could do certain things that you have personal interest and enjoyments in these categories. You just want to do that more. You have skills that should you go to school? Should you get really good at that? Should you build a career around that? Well, what if you're given some opportunity and somebody else has a better one than you? And how are you going to feel about these things? What about your health? What about your family dynamics and the relationship? Do you have, do you have a lot of friends in your life right now? How, how are you doing with those friendships? Do they matter? Do you feel like you know those people and they know you and you feel healthy about them? Or do you feel lonely and isolated? Right, so if we didn't have 2020 as weird as it is and all these other issues, we'd still have those issues, would we not? And all those issues would be genuinely matters of some importance. And Paul could write 14 chapters on those perhaps, but he would still get to this moment where he would turn to each of us and he would say, I would remind you, brothers, of this gospel, which is of first importance. It sits in our lives in a unique way. It occupies a territory in first place. That word importance, it it, it means first in priority. It means foremost. And I love this definition. It means most influential. Most influential. I love that thought. What is the most influential thing about my life at this moment? Paul would turn to my life and he would say, Keith, of all the people, all the issues, all the things, anything you could talk about, speak about, of first influence is this gospel. A first place in your life is the gospel. So Paul's going to press a helpful reset button for us because I'm, I know how easy it is for any of us. The other noise, the other snowstorm issues kind of creep up and they get more and more and more important. And eventually the fallout of that is this one becomes number two or three or 100. And that just can't be our story. Right, and Paul's going to help us with that. All right, if you're looking in your notes, I hope you have notes and scoop those up on the way in. Uh, you're going to see a mirage there. This is not going to happen. I had two questions. The first one was, what is the gospel? The second one was, why is it of first importance? Now, I've already preached this message once in the first service, and, and I have realized, and I mocked myself in the first service. I said, there's no way I'm going to answer both of those questions. And sure enough, I didn't answer both of those questions. I only answered the first one. So I'm not going to mislead you. We're not going to answer the second one this morning because we won't have enough time. But we are going to answer that first one because there's this term that most of us have come across, this term called the gospel. If, if you're new to Christianity, you've heard that term. If you've never read your Bible, you've heard that term. 
you've probably associated with gospel music or gospel churches or your aunt who used that term or have you heard the gospel? There's something that you know about that term, but it, it's, it's a big term. It's a massively important term. It's a little bit of a catchphrase, so it, it gathers some other thought into it besides just that word. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit. And I'm going to stay within the boundaries of what Paul unpacks. I'm just going to use his phrases here because the gospel is spoken of from cover to cover in the Bible. And so we would cover a lot of ground today if we just don't stay right here. Paul's not going to say everything there is about the gospel here, but he's going to help us in some hugely important ways. So I'm going to do two things. I'm going to talk about the ingredients of the gospel starting in chapter 15, verse 3. And then... Uh, some important dynamics about us interacting with it that are also in this verse. Let me start in verse three, right? Here's the ingredients of the gospel. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. All right, Paul, what do you receive, Paul? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, all right? That's his first phrase. And he's gonna got a couple more phrases. We'll take them all apart. But, but here is the gospel. It is centered around an event where Christ died for our sins. Right? That is the defining element of all the Bible. Right? So when I come to this, and the first word that leaps out at me is Christ. Christ died. Okay? It's not news for any of us that somebody died, that people died, that you're going to die. But the death of somebody else doesn't make any difference in accomplishing anything for any of us. But this death does. Christ died. Now, that term Christ, when you come across it, I know most of us would know this, but maybe if you're just reading the Bible for the first time, you don't realize, but that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right? It's not like there's, you know, Joseph Christ and Mary Christ and Jesus Christ and the rest of the family. Um, the word Christ in Scripture is, is a title. It's a description of one particular person. It means the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah. So it would be a familiar thought all the way through scripture that, that this whole Bible is pointing towards one particular person who's like nobody else. He's the chosen one. He's not a member of a team. He's not like chosen amongst the 100. Uh, he's the chosen one. That's who the Christ is. And Jesus says something about this. this. is how Jesus explained his ministry. Like Luke chapter 4, you have Jesus. He's just returned from being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. He's inaugurating his ministry. And he shows up uh, in the, the local gathering of the Jews there. And, and they've gathered for synagogue service. And someone's going to open the scroll and read from it and share. And it's Jesus. And this is what he says, how he inaugurates his ministry. Luke chapter 4, verse 17. It says, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And that good news is the gospel, right? So this is where we get gospel implications of this one particular person is the anointed one. I am the one. All that writing, all that hints along the way that there was coming one, one day there will come. I'm him. I'm the one to proclaim the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the 
captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus explaining, Jesus, why are you here? This is why I'm here. And I'm the only one who could do this, what's on this list. Now, stare carefully at that list because do you see current modern terminologies in that list? I do. Right? We're having a lot of conversations here about the poor. We've had conversations about those who are captive, right? We, we are a culture coming out of years of slavery. So there's captivity in our own background that we're trying to come to grips with as a people. There is recovering of sight to the blind. Now you can go a couple of directions with that. Is, is this blind physically? Is there physical needs in this passage? Uh, are you blind to the right ideas? That's the uh, debate going on, is that you, you don't believe the right things in our world. And then there are those who are oppressed. And if you're listening to anything today, you are hearing people who are forcing the issue of take sides. You are either on the side of the oppressors or of those being oppressed. And that's what you're hearing in our culture today. So our culture is tuning into these words. These are real problems in the human existence today. But this verse makes us aware. There is one person in the history of humanity who is anointed and chosen to deal with these problems. It's not Mahatma Gandhi. It's not George Washington or the guys who framed our constitution. It's not a civil rights leader. There is something going on in this passage that only one person can solve. Only one. And the whole Bible is about him. And it's pointing to the moment when he comes on the scene. And he introduces himself and he says, I am the anointed one. The Christ. And I have come to do something. And he's come to accomplish these things. But this tells you something about your own life. Right? You could be here today and I say poor. And you could think finances. Okay. I say oppressed, and you would think what? You have your own version, perhaps? Maybe, maybe many of us have lived in a culture of privilege. Maybe you wouldn't feel like we've experienced much oppression. So maybe that's another group that would say, hey, hey I get that oppression thing. Uh, there would be those who are captive. I many of you recognize that these verses describe the human existence not just in an American way and not just in a physical way. They describe a spiritual reality for each and every one of us. There is a spiritual poverty in this world. There is a spiritual captivity in this world, right? There is a spiritual oppression that takes place in this world that there is only one who can step in and solve that. So, so this is why this gets pushed out of first place because are you looking for a candidate right now who can do Luke chapter four? He's got the right policies. He's going to solve poverty and captivity and the blindness and the oppression that's in this world. Are, are you thinking there's a candidate running for an, an office on planet earth who can do what's in Luke chapter four? Because if there is, right, we're all going to pay attention to that and we're going to take the gospel and push it down the list here because somebody else has got the remedy to our situation. Our situation in Luke chapter 4 awaited the anointed one. And there's only one who could come and do this. Now, that, doesn't, listen, that doesn't mean that somebody elected to an office can't make a difference in people's poverty at some level. 
Right? These are issues of some importance. But the gospel is of first importance. It is addressing something about our lives that nobody but Jesus Christ can address. Paul's going to describe it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All this, he says, is from God, who through the anointed one, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. God was reconciling the world. The one who would come who was anointed, that one was going to reconcile the world to himself. Is there anybody else who can do that? Now, I don't know if you're noticing this, but nobody's talking about this in the press. This is not anybody's problem if you're following the media. It wasn't a talking point in the debate. There wasn't a moment in which Chris Wallace asked, uh, gentlemen, what would be your approach to reconciling humanity to God? As though that's not a problem. See, when you listen to too much news, you know what you're being convinced of? My problem in the Bible isn't a problem because nobody's talking about it. It would have been interesting to have a third podium there, right? Two candidates and Jesus. The Luke chapter 4 guy, the anointed one to stand and talk about these issues and to explain to you how he would solve your oppression, how he would solve poverty and blindness and captivity. Right? These issues didn't get addressed but they are issues. And here's the great danger for each and every one of us. To think, oh my gosh, November 3rd, whoever gets empowered, like, like they're going to really change our world when we're overlooking the fact that the greatest need I have in my life is in Luke chapter 4. And there's only one who can step in and fix that. And he is the anointed one. He is the Christ who... Paul's going to say, here's, here's the gospel. He's the Christ who died for us. So his death is massively important to each and every one of us. He died for us. Well, why is that important? Why is that part of the gospel, right? Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? Again, another talking point that never comes up on CNN or Fox News or anybody. Nobody is informing the public that you have fallen short of the glory of God. And by the way, your sin falls short of the glory of God. I'm not hearing anybody say that. Right? First importance, well, nobody's talking about that. Because the gospel is not of first importance to those who don't know God. Be careful that you and I aren't taking our lessons from people who don't know what order to put things in. This is a matter of first importance. You and I have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, that should be disturbing to me at some point in my life. And I'm grateful by God's grace that at some point that was disturbing to me. I mean, I lived a chunk of my life where I didn't, that didn't matter to me at all. But suddenly this awareness, this sense of disconnection from God, this sense that I'm not right with God. I've, I've fallen short of God's purpose in life. I've fallen short of his glory and his nature. How do I fix that? 
That becomes the question that the gospel then interacts with and solves. And it introduces us to some words here, right? These are interesting words that maybe, maybe you don't pay attention to these. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now, there's a word you use every week, right? By his blood to be received by faith. Now, those, those three words right there, just in one passage, are very educational about what's going on with you. What do you need, by the way, in your life? How does the word justified redemption and propitiation mean anything to you on a daily basis in your life? Well, I remember there was a season in my life about 10 years ago, I got introduced to words that were new to me, but all of a sudden I wanted to pay attention to them. It was before I probably wasn't all that concerned about them. So I'd gotten diagnosed with cancer about 10 years ago and... You know, so the, the plan there uh, educates you that you have cancer in a particular location, right? So that's where cancer gets diagnosed. It's in a in particular spot. And then you get introduced to a word called metastasized, right? Again, not an everyday word unless you've had cancer or you know somebody who's had and you've walked with them. All of a sudden, that word means a lot to you, a, a lot to you. Because when the doctor informs you as to whether or not that cancer has metastasized or not. He's trying to tell you, uh, if it hasn't metastasized, we're pretty confident, Keith, it's only in your arm. That's only where it is. And so once we remove that, we're pretty sure you're in good shape. Of course, they ran other tests and did some other surgeries to see, did it go anywhere else? And the test came back and said, no, we don't believe it did. But had it come back and that test had said, it's gone somewhere else. The next question you would have asked would have been, where did it go? And their answer would have been, we don't know. We're going to run some more tests and see if we can discover it. But you would be aware that your condition now is quite different because floating around inside of you, waiting to attach itself to something else is cancer cells. And you don't know where they are, but you know, your day is coming perhaps when they're going to attach themselves to something else. That word metastasize told you that. And it's an important word. How do you treat a metastasized cancer cell differently than one that did not, right? So this diagnoses you in some ways and it presents to you a sense of what's the cure? What's the plan? Well, words like justified and redemption and propitiation, they're like metastasized. They're informing you about your spiritual condition and my spiritual condition, right? That word justified is telling me that there is something in the justice of God that needs to be okay between me and God. And I need to be justified before God, which informs me I'm not okay with God. At some point, that's what the gospel says to you. When it, when it first comes to meet you, by the way, when Mr. Gospel shows up and shakes your hand, you know, in our world today, we would love to have the idea that when he shows up and shakes your hand, he's going to tell you how awesome you are, how most 90% of the time you're just doing great, incredible, wonderful things. I, I'm, so, I'm so impressed by you. All right, that's how we want to be greeted by people, right? Mr. Gospel shows up and, and says, hey, I'm so glad I'm here. You are so much in need of being justified. I've got good news for you. 
Wait, you're like, wait, 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 time out. Before you move to the good news, wait, why are you telling me I need to be justified? Well, because you've fallen short of the glory of God. And that's not okay. You're not okay. You're not safe where you are. Oh, no, no. I mean, hey, look, I know I'm not perfect, right? I mean, I, I know there's always room for improvement, right? But, you know, I don't, I, I feel like, you know, God's okay with me. I mean, he's probably not impressed, but he's okay. The word justifies means God's not okay. Did you, did you know that? That at some point in your life, you have to come to grips with, I'm not okay. Me and God are not on good terms. If I can for a second agree with that, my next step is, well, then how does that get fixed? Well, that's what these rest of these words are about. That word redemption, right? that's not a word you use every day. If you're old enough, you guys remember green stamps? How many of you guys remember green stamps? Yeah, a few of you. Right? My mom would collect these green stamps and you could go to the store and you could redeem them. Right? So when I first read in the Bible, I had never even seen that word before apart from green stamps. So I'm coming across it here and I'm thinking like, what the heck's this got to do with green stamps, right? Well, well redemption is God's means of buying us back. It is this exchange word. Like when you would exchange those green stamps for cash or, you know, you could use it for real money. Well, you can exchange your life for Christ. That's what God was doing. He was redeeming us. He was buying us back by exchanging his son's life for ours. That needed to happen. You don't just get swept under the rug. You don't just get grandfathered in. God just doesn't have a good day and say, hey, everybody's off today. No, no, no. There's going to have to be an exchange. The gospel is about this exchange. And I can get right with God through exchanging my life for Christ? That's, that's what this is about? Yes. Why did that need to happen? Well, because of that other word, propitiation, right there. That there's something about the God who is in the gospel who needs to be satisfied. That's what that word means. It means something that satisfies God. Did you, did you know? I didn't know this. That's why I'm asking you this way. Did you know that God would need to be satisfied by something before he would be okay with you? It's not a mood thing. It's not a you thing. It's not, hey, well, if you clean yourself up a little bit and get it together, God will be okay with you. And that's what we think. But that's not what's in this verse. This verse means that God is satisfied by his blood, by whose blood? That little phrase, Christ died for our sins. He died. His death is what satisfied. He shed his blood and that satisfied God. So there is something unique happening here with this person in this moment, in the gospel that no one else can do. You understand, nobody can die for you. No one can. There's not a civil rights leader. There's not a great historical person. There's not a person that you know that, that has loved you greatly. They can't die for you. There's only one who can do that. The Christ died for our sins so that we could receive this. And, and listen, this isn't like, oh, there's these, those hippie guys in the first century made this up, hung out with Jesus and just started this new religion. Uh, he says, Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures. 
In other words, the scriptures, the Old Testament, Genesis, all the way on, has always said this. This has always been the storyline. This wasn't made up in the first century. This wasn't Jesus showed up, convinced a little band of followers to propagate some message that no one had ever heard of. It's all throughout the Old Testament. God, and listen, if you've never read your Bible, <laughs> part of me wants to warn you that there's a God who revealed himself in a book who's going to one day say, why didn't you just read? That dude, that dude that yelled at you one Sunday morning, he told you, why didn't you read? I'm okay, why didn't you read? Because if you picked this up and you started reading it back in Genesis, you would find out that when the world fell into sin, God was already with a solution. With the lamb who was slain from the foundations of the world. This plan is before, if you can get your mind around that, before Adam and Eve even sinned. This plan is revealed in scripture. And then you just follow it, right? That it leads out of the garden and then it finds this man named Abraham. And it's like God says, hey, whole world, pay attention to everything that I do with this man named Abraham. I'm going to explain the gospel to you through him. And then he has a lineage and he has people and out of him comes a nation and that nation gets gathered to Mount Sinai and we all know the 10 commandments and God interacts with them and he proclaims to the whole world, hey, everybody pay attention to what I do through this nation right here. I've made an arrangement with them that explains to you the gospel so that when the Messiah, the one comes, you'll recognize him and God reveals him at Mount Sinai and then the prophets come along and they say one thing after another, appointing the day. When the Messiah, the Christ is going to show up and he's going to do exactly this. So that when Jesus dies on the cross, right? When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him, he can stand in fulfillment and go, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, that's like 30 AD. When that gets said, where did John the Baptist get the idea to say that to Jesus when he comes to him to be baptized? He got it from the scriptures. He knew for years and years and years, God had been saying, there's going to come one. There's going to be this one guy. This one guy's coming. He's going to do this. And so when he walks up and that's one of my favorite phrases in all the Bible, because it just in that moment, it's just clarity. John the Baptist proclaiming repentance to the world. And I can imagine what that scene looked like. He's, he's, he's baptizing in the Jordan. He's got a crowd around him. And off in the distance, he sees this figure walking up. Something inside of him reveals it's God. That's the one. That's the one. And he comes up and proclaims he's the one who can take away sins. Right, there's something about this gospel that is so unique to our lives that it does something that nothing else can do. And it's been revealed for scripture for years and years. Right, last two phrases that he, that he unpacks here, I'll just glance by them. He was buried. Right, Paul recognized, that's significant because that would mean he was actually a physical human being. Right? When you and I stare back at this information, it's like, well, you know, Jesus is kind of like an essence, right? He's kind of like the, the ultimate spiritual idea. No, he was a real person. You could have touched him. He was in a body. He was fully human. And when he died, his heart stopped beating. Blood actually came out of his body. And he was put into a tomb in burial. And you could have gone to that tomb. It was a real place at a real moment. 
That's who this Jesus Christ was and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So this resurrection, which is what the rest of this chapter is about. So I'll, I'll save the emphasis for that for later. But, you know, if you're, if you're older in the room here, um, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to start thinking that there's this thing called retirement. You know, I just, I've lived and I've been busy and I've had a, you know, a full life, a lot of kids and a lot of stuff going on. It's, it's kind of starting to slow down in a couple of categories. So I'm starting to think, oh Yeah. Aren't you supposed to plan to retire one day? Um, so I'm starting to think there is, there is the end in sight. And so some of you who are old, you, you get this. And all of a sudden, the resurrection, a little more meaningful now than it was when you were really, really busy in 32. And it's like, I don't have time for that. I'm not planning on dying anytime soon. Oh, but now <laughs> you're kind of starting to make plans for that, right? The resurrection. Can I tell you that that, that need in your life? When your heart stops beating and your physical body gives out, there's a solution for that. It's that guy in Luke chapter four. It's the Christ who came and died and was resurrected. He will give you a new life that'll last forever in a new body as well, right? This is the gospel. And this is not all the gospel, by the way. I mean, a lot of folks run to this verse and say, hey, this, here's the, the gospel verse and all. And it does a really good job of covering most, most things. But, you know, once you get past the resurrection, there's this other thing called the ascension, where Jesus goes back to occupy the throne of the universe. It's, it matters. That's an authority issue that matters. That's in the gospel. And then he's going to send his spirit into our lives and give us new life from the inside out. The sending of the spirit is the gospel as well. The gospel was never intended to just be an event that didn't come to us to bring God's life. So it returns the life of God to us. So really to see the full gospel, you have to go a little bit beyond 1 Corinthians 15, but it covers essentials. Let me just pick on some dynamics here and then we're going to pray together in just a moment. There's some dynamics that precede Paul explaining the ingredients of the gospel. He says this about the dynamics of us interacting with this gospel. I would remind you, brothers, verse 1, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So what is the gospel? Well, it's words and thoughts and concepts that you could actually write down and use human language to share with another person. That's how Paul gave it to them. So why do I say that? Well, because here's what it's not. The gospel is not vague spirituality. Right? You bump into somebody who says, hey, I, I don't know, just all my life, I've just been a very spiritual person. And you get around them. And maybe somebody who prays even, they, they, they pray. Or they go to church meetings. And so you just know them as your aunt so-and-so would just always, she was just very devoted to something. Um, none of that necessarily is the gospel. The gospel has definition. It has specifics. It's not just this vague sense of, of a spiritual reality. It's, it's you know, I, I appreciate AA and their attempts. If you've ever been to an AA meeting, it starts with a recognition that there is a higher power. That's a good place. You're starting in the right direction. But just the mere acknowledgement of a higher power is not the gospel. When Paul preached the gospel, it had specific details that were centered around the Christ who died, was buried, and was resurrected. You, if you don't have that content, you don't have the gospel. Whatever you got there, it's not the gospel. Might be well-intended, might be the religion you grew up with, might be spirituality, whatever. 
but it's not the gospel, right? The gospel's got content. And by the way, for each of us as Christians, since it is our ministry to share the gospel, uh, it's important for every one of us to know where the boundary lines for the gospel actually are. So when we share the gospel with somebody, we're just not sharing that, hey, you know, I I certainly hope you're going to be a good person from now on. I'll pray with you. Uh, Being good people, that's not the gospel. You don't need the Christ to try and be a better human being. He doesn't need to die for your sins and restore you to God for you to have a better day tomorrow than you had today. Right? So the gospel has content. So I preach this gospel to you. And then listen to this, which you received. You receive the gospel. All right. So just think with me for a second. If you're going to receive something right before you receive it, do you have it? No. That's radically important. Because if you grew up in a setting that had Jesus figures in it and terminologies in it, you could just think that, well, I've always, I've always, I've always been a Christian. Um, No. At some point, you actually have to receive the gospel because you don't have it. You can have it. But at some point, you don't have it and you have to receive it into your life. John chapter 1 says it this way. He came to his own, speaking of Jesus, and his own people did not receive him. So you can get pretty close. You can hear me talk about the gospel today. That doesn't mean you've received it. People got around Jesus. He did all kinds of miracles. He shared and taught, but they did not receive him. They heard him and they came near him, but they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, right? Not born this way, but born of God from the inside. And so there's something else here. There is a becoming here. If you receive him, which means just right up until the moment where it plops into your spiritual lap, you have not received him. And when you do receive him, you become. Become a child of God. And this flies in the face of a lot of how we grew up. Some of us grew up religiously. Uh, It wasn't until I read the Bible in my teenage years that I understood the Bible actually didn't call me a child of God. I thought everybody was a child of God. Isn't everybody a child of God? No, not like this. Well, wasn't everybody created by God? Yes. But is everybody a child of God? No. You become a child of God. Well, what was I before that? Well, I'm not sure I want to open this can of worms. Well, you weren't in God. You were in Adam. And the Bible says you were a son of the devil. So we definitely weren't children of God. We had a need. We needed to get out of that family and get into another family. And how could that happen? By receiving the gospel in our lives. So this is a massively important thing, isn't it? I would say no matter how you live in your life, it is the matter of first importance. There's nothing more important about your life, about who you are as a human being than whether you have received the gospel into your life. It is a matter of first importance. 
One more thought here. Paul referenced that the gospel in which you stand, in which you stand, right? The gospel becomes something that you and I have stood our lives on. That's, that's what this means, right? And, and we use this phrase a little bit this way. It's like when we ask somebody, so, so where do you stand on this, right? We want to know. Well, there's a topic in front of you. Where, hey, where, where do you stand? What do you stand for anyway, right? That's out there. A lot of bullying in the cyber world right now. What do you, what do you stand for? Um, Every Christian should be able to recognize I I stand for the gospel. My identity is bound to the gospel. And and be careful because there's a lot of suitors out there that would like for your identity to be bound to that. Right? From your personality to what you grew up with to what you hope will be rewarding in your life. You, You could bind your identity to that. Or something more common in our culture right now, right? Galatians 3 picks on this in the first century. Verse 27, Paul says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ, right? This this one. There is neither now Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ, right? Something that this gospel does to us overrides our identity markers, right? For, for the gospel to come on the scene and say, hey, I, I know you, you were a Jew and you were a Greek and you were at war with each other. And you never got along with each other. And this group spoke very poorly of you. And there was great disrespect between the two of you. And you couldn't stand to be around one another. Not anymore. Because there's something of first importance that made that move down the list. Oh, the slave and free thing. That's a massive issue, right? Slave and free. People who can vote, people who can't vote. Uh, People who had access to the structures of society in that day and people who did not. People who were recognized as a human being and people who were recognized as belonging to somebody else like property. That may have been your identity, holding you down, limiting who you are, making you look down your nose at others. But when the gospel comes, it's of first importance and it pushes these things down the list as less important, right? Male and female. Now listen, today, maybe Paul was writing to us today. He might say, for as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Democrat nor Republican. There is neither black nor white. There's neither male nor female. That, 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 that may be what you've identified with all these years. And that might be the thing that most in your life has defined who you are. Your skin color your political association. Your family's always been in this party and always believed these principles and you've always been really loud about them. And then this comes along and says, but that's not of first importance. Something else is. The gospel is of first importance. And listen, this this is incredibly good news. It's what creates our sense of unity. It's why we're talking about this right now. I'm going to have a prayer time in a couple weeks. But it also addresses you personally. And I won't read this first, but it's in your outline if you want to look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. And right before that, it says, we don't recognize any man any longer according to the flesh. 
right now, tribalism and the way things are playing out, it's all about recognizing your flesh. It's all about you declaring who are you loyal to, what do you like, what ideas are you bound to. But, but let me get personal for a second. How many of you guys have personal issues in your life that you recognize that those things about your flesh, they're defining who you are? Things that have happened to you. Your personality. Fearful person who's bound to fear. And, and you don't ever drift out very far. You don't do very many things that take a lot of faith because it's... I, I'm just really, I'm scared. I'm careful. Or, or maybe you're a person who you got a reputation about you. You got a personality about you. You know, your, your spouse is, is used to just dealing with your anger because you're just an angry person. You've always been an angry person. Your, your dad was an angry person. Does anything interfere with that? Or is that just who you're bound to be for the rest of your life? What if the gospel comes along and it's of first importance and it demotes that thing to less influential in your life? And it does that because you are a new creation now. The, the life of God has come to you and has preempted all that stuff. And so we don't make first status of our flesh and what I've always been and what I've been around. That's not first status for any of us. The gospel, which has brought us the life of God to us, has brought a new identity for us. It's first status. It's of first importance in our lives. That's wonderful news. That's incredible news. I don't have to be the way I've been for another day. But the guy in Luke chapter 4, he's the one who can do that. And he's the only one who can do that. All right, one last quote and we're going to pray together. Eric, you can come back up here. Stephen Um wrote this thought in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He said, if the truth of the centrality of the gospel brings harmonious balance into a sinner's life, why make the mistake of pushing the gospel to the periphery? Individuals doubt the present reliability of the foundation of the gospel, and they seek other foundations upon which to stand, right? I want to build my life on something else. Why about build it on the gospel? He says, most of them are self constructed their vocation, their family. Maybe it's a cause that's going on right now. In the midst of the uncertainties and the imbalances of life, people look for other things to take hold of for stability. And I gotta say, I've, I've watched, I'm, I'm watching this play out in the body of Christ. It's like all, the, all of our lives, the history of the gospel, we've always had the gospel. We have the gospel now. But yet I've seen Christians come to life over a social cause in a way that I've never seen them come to life over the gospel. And it's like, oh, my day has come. My cause has arrived. Now, let me just insult everybody here. Whether it's Black Lives Matter or whether it's supporting Donald Trump or whether it's being a homeschooler or whether it's being whatever it is that in your life suddenly you found something that you can really get behind this. Can I just tell you the gospel was meant to be that thing? It was meant to be of first importance. Whether Donald Trump or Joe Biden, whoever gets elected, it's not of first importance to any of us. The gospel is of first importance. These other matters are not to be in that category. But if I let them in that category, everything else becomes hard to manage. 
And this is happening in the body of Christ. And maybe you're not reading up on it very much. But there is a massive move of disunity in the body of Christ right now. Massive. It's affecting the way people relate to one another. How did that happen? Something else crawled above the gospel and became more important. And if you don't answer to that the way I answer to it, we can't be together. So who are you going to vote for? Some people are asking that to figure out whether or not they're going to fellowship with you or not. Whether they're not going to be unified with you or not. Do you understand? It's the gospel that is of first importance. Can I just spare you an awkward moment in heaven? When God, who has seen governments come and go and candidates come and go. Most of us can't even remember some of the people who ran for office in our lives. And we have made that such a massively important issue. Can can I just tell you, if you stand before God one day, he's not going to understand why that became of first importance to you. And the gospel was not. And you couldn't be unified with the people that are in your life because they had a different opinion than you did about these social issues. Can I just tell you, you're going to be shocked. Your your, your neck is going to snap. When the God of the universe wants to know why you took that which is of first importance and made it third or fourth, that's not a good place. But listen, our whole life gets messed up when we do that. Our fellowship, our walking with our husbands and wives and our families, our priorities, where we put our jobs in our lives. When the gospel gets out of first place, something else will replace it. And it will become a problem for us. So... Let's do, let's do this this morning. Let's go ahead and let's stand up and pray together. Let's just take a moment just right now, just, just you and the Lord having a conversation. And this God who loves you is the God who gives commands, reveals priority number one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the most gracious thing God could say to you because it orients you around what is going to be the very best for your life. And this reminder here in 1 Corinthians 15 is, is just on the same page with that. It's raising a reminder that the gospel is of first importance. So can you just answer to God just for a moment? Is the gospel of first importance to you? Is it the thing that you wake up in the morning conscious of, that today will be lived for the sake of the gospel? Is it the thing that informs the goals of your life that there are places you are eager to go and places you would not go because of the gospel? Is it informing the way you feel about yourself? Who you are as a person? Things that you struggle with? How you feel about your life and where it is right now? Is the gospel first in that thought process let me, let me just speak to two different groups here this morning remember that those who 
were Jesus' own. They came to him, but they didn't receive him. I want to ask you, have you received the gospel? You've taken that which is outside of yourself, this Christ who died for your sins to justify you and bring you before God and reconcile you. Have you opened your heart to him in faith and said, I, I know I need to be made right with God. And I believe you, Jesus, that you came to do that and you're the only one who could do that for me. And I put my trust in you and I put my faith in you and I want to receive you. Listen, if that's where your heart is right now this morning, you just say that to God yourself. And open your heart and receive this gospel. God, I pray for every person right here who's just sensing that right now in their hearts, that they would, by faith, just receive from you this morning. No matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, no matter what they haven't done, no matter how they compare to anybody else, your offer stands. This gospel is to be received. Lord, let them receive it this morning. This morning, just open your heart right now. Oh God, come on. Lord, I, I want that. Receive that. God, for every person who's here this morning who can say, yeah, that, I have done that. Even if I just did it just now or I did it 10 years ago. God, what does it mean for us that your gospel would be of first importance? God, what kind of hope does that restore to my soul this morning? What kind of life does it call me to that reprioritizes things that maybe takes away some of the categories of struggle I'm having because I, I don't really need to be doing that? God, how does it awaken the sense that I, I stand justified before you? I stand forgiven, that propitiation word, your blood was shed so that mine wouldn't have to be. That redemption word, you exchanged your life for mine. Lord, what, what a place I get to live in before you. What hope I have that you will engage my life this week because it's not about me and what I've done or haven't done. It's about you and what you did for me. There's just something powerful about your gospel being of first importance to us. So Lord, whether that's direction for the future or comfort for the right now, God, would you help us, each and every one of us, to be reminded, as the Apostle Paul just did, of this gospel that we have received. It is of first importance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. So glad to be with each of you. Glad for you guys at home. We miss you. We're hoping to see you very soon. Praying for you. Keep in touch with us. Let us know if you have any needs we can help serve you with this week.